Hi, I'm Amanda Corris. Welcome to Just Sustainability's special feature on socially engaged philosophy at the intersection of sustainability and social justice. For our first episode, I spoke with Dr. Evelyn Brister, Professor of Philosophy at Rochester Institute of Technology in New York. Dr. Brister's research focuses on philosophy of science and environmental philosophy. She's recently been working on issues in ecological restoration and conservation, as well as interdisciplinary collaboration, and the idea of doing philosophy in the field, something which we'll hear more about. I asked Dr. Brister to start us off by saying a bit about how she got interested in doing this kind of philosophical work. Thanks so much for inviting me and talking with me, Amanda. Um, I got interested in it not immediately uh, out of graduate school. I think I was doing conservation work in my private life for a long time, forever, since high school, I guess. Um, and in, in college, we with friends, I started an environmental organization on our campus and did volunteer work for the Nature Conservancy. So that's for a long time been a part of my life, but I was, as a philosopher of science, it really, I was working on objectivity and it didn't seem like it was going to be integrated into my work. Um, so I started in my neighborhood working with a group to, um, restore and improve this. We were very lucky. We had an urban park that was forested. It was old growth. Oh, wow. Inside the city limits of Rochester. So a pretty, pretty rare, fairly large 50 acre park that hadn't been logged ever. Um, and so I worked with them and it was in working with them that I realized that I was using a lot of my skills as an educator, as someone who was, could organize events. Um, and because we were working with the city government, I was thinking a lot about political theory and about how working with real people on real problems was not at all like the political theory that hmm. I had been taught or that, you know, my, my ideal. Um, and sure. so that, that made me realize that I was doing philosophy all the time. So the yeah. experience was that I was bringing philosophical thoughts into that work to improve how we worked as an organization and at the same time I was learning things in the organization that were influencing how I thought about like pragmatism and pragmatist um, and how I thought about the way that science is used in ecological applications and around that same time I was getting a master's in environmental science so this was after I had become a philosophy professor oh okay um, yeah and so all of the pieces came came together, I guess, all at once where I realized that I could do science and I could do community work and I could be a philosopher. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. And, and that totally makes sense in terms of thinking about field philosophy, which, of course, we'll get to. But, you know, that that is very much the experience, seems like, is philosophers getting out there and getting involved in these projects as a philosopher, but also sort of bringing those philosophical insights to the project and, you know, finding this really nice overlap between the issues that are dealt with in those sort of settings and 
some of the insights that philosophers can bring to those issues. So I think in the last 10 or 20 years, I've been teaching for about 20 years. And during that time, initially, I think there was a a big movement that I became aware of first um, to do engaged teaching. So that universities were um, becoming more involved in service learning and taking our classes. There, there was an office for service learning on my campus, and we were taking our classes um, to do community work and encouraging students to do community volunteer work. And it was through that that I realized that there was not a very big line between doing engaged teaching and then ways in which the work that I was doing was not just teaching, that it was informing my research and that I was sort of doing research when I was helping people out by contributing, like sharing what I know from about political theory, sharing what I know about objectivity, sharing what I know about um, the public communication of science, that that was that was yet another way of disseminating what we do at the university. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. It's really nice to see that overlap. And I think that that's something that is, and, and maybe you can, you know, you can confirm if this is true, something that's gaining more prominence in academia is an acknowledgement of, you know, sort of community-based learning, not just as sort of this extracurricular activity, something nice that we can do if we have the time, but as something really sort of integral, integral, is that right? <laughs> Central, <laughs> important, um, to, to education as a whole, right? Is, you know, finding those connections at the community level, I think is really valuable work. And it, it is exciting to think about philosophers getting involved there and asking the philosophical questions and, and making, you know, <laughs> actually making, maybe not, maybe whether or not it would make a difference. I don't know, but, you know, making an impact to some degree, I think. Right. Well, so many philosophers of science now are trained in science. And when we get trained in science, we do lab work. And when sure. we get trained in ecology, we do field work. And so thinking of what, you know, what you're doing and, you know, doing an ecology lab is not, it's not just working on population growth equations, right? A lot of it is you're in class, but you're in waders with nets collecting invertebrates in the stream, right? And so that is learning. Um, and sure. that model, the fact that I had already become a, been a teacher and then was going back and taking undergraduate and graduate science classes and doing labs and doing chemistry labs and then bringing those kinds of techniques back into my philosophy classes because it's, you know, hands-on learning is such an effective way of learning. Um, I think it's been neglected in philosophy. It's been neglected maybe in the humanities in general. But um, it's being used more, you know, digital humanities, hist historians to do a lot of field work now and take their students out in communities so that they are looking at their community as a, as a sometimes as a historical text or as a literary sure. text in, in English departments. And um, so that's sort of hand hands-on learning, I think, is something that I've borrowed from the sciences. And it's been possible for me because I've been – at a technical university where yeah. engineering education, hands-on education is just expected. When I was getting my environmental science degree, I was taking an undergraduate geology class. One of the things we did during class time was 
go out to the parking lot where they were building a new building and sketch the the drill that they were using oh, to, cool. okay. to uh, take soil samples for foundations. Um, and just those, like, I really remember that, you know, that made a big impression on me. So I still hear from students sometimes that I've had five or 10 years ago. And they say, you know, one of the things that I remember from your philosophy class was going out into the woods and talking about what it means to me. Talking about doing philosophy out in the actual world, beyond the classroom or in front of the computer, gave us a nice segue into bringing up Dr. Brewster's new book with Robert Froderman called A Guide to Field Philosophy. I asked her what it means to do philosophy in the field. Most people picture philosophers as solitary thinkers holed away in a dark room surrounded by stacks of books, which may or may not be reality these days. I was interested to hear about what happens when philosophers go out into the world. Yeah, I think the contrast is between philosophers in the armchair and philosophers <laughs> out doing field work. And what does it mean to do to do field work? I mean, I think I quoted that book with Bob Froderman, and one of the things he talks a lot about is using the Socratic method outside of the classroom, and so you know, being like Socrates and engaging with people and asking them why they're why they do the things that they do and why they do them the way they do. So field work in philosophy, it's a metaphor that draws somewhat on um, field work in geology or field work in ecology. Um, But it also draws on the idea of doing field work in the social sciences. Um, And I think maybe even more strongly on social science field work where anthropologists are engaged in communities and the, I guess you'd say the paradigm that they're using, the methods that they're using are no longer separate from the community. So if you're an anthropologist and you're doing participatory field work in a community, you also are developing a relationship with people and you owe them something. You owe, uh, there's a sense of responsibility that you develop to not only if you use their ideas and your research to give them credit, but also to use those ideas in the way, in ways that they would recognize and would endorse um, and not, not take ideas too far out of context. And then to continue the relation, like it's a long-term relationship. So I think that that's really the, the, there, there are a lot of elements of doing fieldwork as a philosopher but one of them is to develop long-term relationships. So philosophers of science in particular have been engaged for a long time in the sense that we share our work with scientists and we share our work with um, the public. We share our work with communities who are interested in questions about objectivity or research ethics. But the idea of fieldwork is different from that because it's not just going somewhere and giving someone a lecture on your research. It's more working with them over a period of time. And so they become somewhat involved in in guiding where your research goes. Yeah, I really liked this point in the book about asking questions. Philosophers are really good at asking questions. I was thinking about how just the asking of questions, you know, invites people to offer their perspective in a space where there isn't, there might not necessarily be the opportunity to address those sort of bigger picture philosophical questions in, in the context 
of working on a particular project, for example. Um, and so, so I, I feel like one thing that philosophers can do there, which is really nice, is create that space for to you know invite people to bring their perspectives and to encourage. Um, you know, the sharing of perspectives as well, especially if you have like an interdisciplinary team of researchers and community members, you know, all working together in a particular project. You know, it's a really nice space for everyone to, you know, come together and, and bring their perspectives together and, and compare them, right? And so it's not just a matter of, you know, imparting the, the, the one scientific method <laughs> on everyone there, but, you know, sort of working out a new method together in some way. I feel like that's a really valuable part of doing this sort of work. Philosophers are getting increasingly involved in community-engaged research. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is what benefits there are to having a philosopher on board in these types of projects. I asked Dr. Brister her thoughts on this, and here's what she had to say. So I don't think that there's a lot that's unique, but there are things that we do more often and so have more practice at doing. It's, it's a little bit like mathematicians aren't the only people who handle numbers. Sure. And lawyers aren't the only ones who deal with legal issues. But both of those spend a lot of time doing what they do. And so we're not the only ones who handle questions or theory or big ideas. But we spend a lot of time doing that. We spend a lot of time working to shift um, the levels of discourse from theory down to, down to like processes, down to really practical matters. And so because we have that practice, I think that we can we can often play a role in the kinds of so I work I go to a lot of meetings I think field philosophers go to go to a lot of meetings and sometimes they're in people's living rooms and sometimes they're in offices and sometimes they're outdoors um, some of our meetings were always walking through the woods oh, talking nice. about what needed to be done um, and people get hung up sometimes. And one of the things that we as philosophers can do is notice that there are assumptions that are being made that not everyone agrees with, but that have become kind of stuck. And so it's noticing sticking points. Like this idea of identifying the sticking point is something that we do when we write, when we write a research article, we say, okay, well, here are the inconsistencies. Here are the assumptions that maybe should be questions. Here are the assumptions that one interlocutor one speaker is holding and the other speaker is not and so that skill becomes really essential when conversations in the group become stuck and they need to get unstuck in ways that are not seen as political it's not the case that philosophers are necessarily good at doing that when they like have a particular interest and they have a horse in the race you know like <laughs> it's not like our faculty meetings are are particularly smooth they're not but in this context, when you know that that's your role, then it's something that you can contribute. I think we should, as philosophers, talk more about how we can work with institutions um, and how working with institutions often means stepwise change. Uh, you know, it, especially if you're talking about justice, then it varies because I think a lot of justice is um, a lot of justice issues are accomplished locally and working on local issues with local organizations. But becoming involved with larger um, NGOs, nonprofits, and with government agencies, that's, that's another route, is working with institutions and understanding 
how to work with institutions. There is an interesting story. It's in the, in the, in the book that I published, the collection of essays by John Broom, where he writes about being on the IPCC. Hmm. He's one of only a couple of philosophers who have ever served on the IPCC. Um, and he is a, he's a philosopher and ethicist who has a background in economics. And one of his contributions was getting a sentence into an IPCC report that committed, um, you know, that expressed the viewpoint, a viewpoint about how, um, about, yeah, about, I can't remember the details, but it was about values and, um, just understanding that getting one sentence changed in a report like that can be seen as an accomplishment because the impact that it has grows down the line sure. and that document is used to shape policy. Yeah. Because we're philosophers and we're not scientists, we're allowed to bring up issues that the scientists maybe feel shouldn't or can't be discussed or can't be discussed productively, even though they are very relevant and are on the table. Um, I worked with some conservation scientists recently who are um, advocating for the use of biotechnology and conservation, or at least considering how to do it responsibly. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that sort of needed to be needed to be talked about was were the ethics of this and also in, including um, other people in decision making. Mm-hmm. And no one felt like that was their area of expertise. And it's not, exactly my area of expertise either but i know enough to bring it up and um to point out the importance of talking about it and then once that conversation was broached then it became very fruitful um and something that i've noticed is that this is where the role of values in science which is something that you and i have talked about before where it comes in is that scientists are very the ones that I work with in conservation science are aware of the role of values and they are aware of their own commitments usually to preserving species it's not a neutral question right like they want to preserve species they want to preserve biodiversity they want to um, um, restore functioning ecosystems but talking about the values isn't something that they're used to doing and it's not something they feel comfortable doing or that they are permitted to do but without talking about them, then you're not really able to, you're kind of rudderless in terms of making um, judgments about the priorities. You can make, you can put all the information that you have about um, some particular species and what makes it thrive into the mix, but without then comparing and being able to judge the conservation actions that you might take against like inaction, um, then that, then that you, you can't make progress. And then judging inaction is something that they're not really qualified. They don't feel they're qualified to do. Um, and so there's kind of this, these conversations that need to happen, but um, it's not clear who's supposed to have them. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I guess that's a place where philosophers are well suited to jump in and say, oh, you know, I'll be the one to take this on and to ask these questions and, you know, to be willing to maybe not necessarily take on the burden, but at least take on the responsibility oh, of the exploring that space. Yeah. yeah. Asking mm-hmm. the questions. 
one of the things that I found in working with scientists was they would do their, their research was outside of our meetings and my research didn't, that was relevant, didn't really start until I, I had to listen to what everyone else had to say. Yeah. Um, and so there was a little bit of an asymmetry there because I was asked to present at the same time and in the same way that they were presenting and they were presenting on 10 years of field work. And I just wanted to go last so that I could then comment on what they had been saying. So comment, commenting and interpreting, those are our rule, our roles. And asking questions, identifying assumptions, and then having, getting the conversation going so people can then um, identify their own assumptions and comment on those, comment on their values and why they hold them. I think that's, that's our role. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really nice space for philosophy to come in. Yeah. Something that I sometimes get asked about field work is how do you get started and how do you present yourself to a group as having something to offer? Sure. Yeah. And there's not the, there's not one answer that fits every situation, but if you're talking about working with community groups in your own local uh, community. I think the things that we have to offer are actually just academic skills and edu- educator skills. So once you, because part of, in order to do field work, one of the things you need to, to do is understand the landscape, understand the political landscape of the group that you're working with. And then, then you can, once you've earned trust, have some things to say, questions to ask that can then guide group conversations. So how do you get into that place of trust? So that you can do the field work. And I, th- I think there, everyone is looking for people to organize events, write reports, take notes at meetings. And these are just skills that academics have. It's not special to philosophy, but, um, you, when you work with people who are not in the university or not educators, then you realize like lots of people are really uncomfortable speaking in public. That's a very natural thing. Lots of us are uncomfortable speaking in public too, but we've had enough practice that we can do it. Um, and yeah, taking notes, it's huge. Being able to um, take a bunch of complex information and then um, organize it and simplify it into a clear message. That's another skill that just a whole lot of groups can use. And so I think getting involved in field work often involves getting involved in a group. Sure. Yeah. Then developing a field work aspect to it. Yeah. That reminds me of one of the pieces of advice that came out of the workshop that we did, which is just showing up is, is a big part of it is just, you know, attending groups and meeting with people and just listening to what people are talking about and working on and are interested in exploring. That's an important first step in getting involved in, in doing this kind of work. You know, it's a really long, slow fight to change the world. And same goes with sustainability. Um, and a lot of my work on sustainability has been pulling weeds and planting trees. and Literally? <laughs> like, literally. Okay. I've planted a lot of trees. I have pulled out a lot of weeds. Um, okay. <laughs> right now I'm working on a management plan for a local park and that's taking some of my time. But when I'm done with that, I'll go pull out some weeds in accordance with the management plan. And that'll also take time. It's very, it's enjoyable work, but I mean, let's not forget that when we talk about field philosophy being time consuming, writing articles is time consuming and 
any kind of all all the work for jo- for social justice, it takes time and it takes effort and it's super rewarding. In this first half of my conversation with Dr. Evelyn Brister, Professor of Philosophy at Rochester Institute of Technology, we talked about what field philosophy, philosophy out in the world, looks like and how justice issues are often central in both the theory and practice of this type of work. Working with communities means listening and attending to their needs, and we talked about how philosophers can play a role in creating space for making sure that those needs are addressed and in drawing attention to things like underlying assumptions, questions, and values. Stay tuned for the second half of our conversation, where we'll talk about forest health and ecosystem resilience, as well as ethical issues surrounding the use of biotechnology. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.